0: been in this James series and um, it's been great. It's gonna it's gonna be like the focus of our summer really all the way till we get to the the anniversary service on September fifteenth. doors open at ten o'clock. Um, <laughs> but when we get to that, but you know we've been hearing a lot of different people share right? this is an amazing book because James is like uh, a kind of unusual book in the sense that it, it really is advocating for practical faith. In other words, a lot of the scripture reminds us that faith in Christ is the key, and it is. There's no question about it. For by grace are you saved through faith, that and that of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's what Ephesians tells us. God, the Lord is clear about that. However, one of the things that James is doing is, he pro- is he's approaching it from a different angle, and he's saying, look, if we say we believe in Jesus and it's not showing up in our lives in our everyday real life in the workplace at home certainly in our critical relationships if it's not if we if there's not things that we're working on inside of our own heart then he says i have to question and it's not showing up in our lives then i have to he says i have to question the validity of that faith and so it's a really practical book it talks about applying our faith and it talks about wisdom in fact my focus on the summer my contributions with James have been on this this idea of wisdom primarily. And I've been, just this idea of practical wisdom, how to live life with practical wisdom, how to make better decisions, how to stick with things instead of running away from things, how to have our lives increasingly look more like Jesus, you know? And so James talks about this in his third chapter, verse 13. I just want to open up with the verse again and revisit it. He says, if you're wise and you understand God's ways, he says, I want you to prove it by living an honorable life, uh, doing good works with, with humility. Look at that phrase, with the humility that comes from wisdom. That's, that's a very interesting statement. It, it really challenges us to think about what, what humility is. You know, I originally learned, learned this verse, first read it when I was a young follower of Jesus in my teenage years. I remember reading this verse, but I read it out of an older version. It's this version I still use a lot, the, the New King James Version. And it it rendered it slightly different. There was a phrase that stuck out in my mind after all these years. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? He says, let him show it by good conduct that his works, and look at that phrase, that his works are done in the, look at that, meekness of wisdom. Now, that's a word we don't use a lot, meekness of wisdom. What is that? What is the meekness of wisdom? It certainly has to do with humility. It's an interesting, a curious phrase. It reminds us that true wisdom, as God defines it, is humble, humble, it's, it's um, the opposite of self-exalting, arrogant. It's not proud. But I was thinking about this word, this word meekness, because, you know, what he's saying is that when we really are seeking the wisdom of God, it's an attitude that begins to, a way of being maybe, of putting it differently. It, it starts to characterize our life. It shows up as gentleness. It shows up as compassion. It starts to show up in kindness. Uh, by the way, meekness is not to be confused with weakness. It was said of Jesus, he, was, he, he said, I am meek and lowly. Now, what is me- you know, meekness? Meekness, is, it, it, it can be sometimes confused for weakness because essentially it's power that is under control. It's, it's, it's how I said. It, it. There's a kind of strength that is restrained in humility. So it's measured out. It's not abusive. It, you know, G- didn't Jesus teach that? Remember, we were talking about this how he modeled, he said to his disciples when they were arguing about who was the greatest, he said, he says, you know, and he got in and he washed their feet. And he says, you know, that's what the Gentiles do. was some of the Romans, he said, you know, they, they kind of like, they're the, the powerful ones, the smart ones, that they lorded over the rest. And he says, and, and it's sort of like a very top-down deal. And, and he says, you know, and, and he goes, but that's not the way it's going to be with you. He said, "Well, I want you to think. I want you to think about it differently." He says, "Look, if I'm your Lord and I am, if I'm your teacher and you respect me as such, and I, if I can serve you, then what does it mean about you serving your brother? What about that? Is any of you are any of you too good to be?" He was modeling servant leadership. That's the meekness of wisdom. He was he was saying, "Don't have, don't use your power to just take care of yourself or to be, don't be arrogant. Walk with me. Walk, look what I, look how I'm doing it right as I." Like, Bless people, right? Be generous. Respect every. Try to respect people. Try to pe- treat people, whether they're important or not as important. Try to try to treat them well. You know. Remember, you come in, in as a servant comes in Christ. Let that char- let that meekness characterize you. That's great. You know, one of the reasons I think I've, I was thinking about it a lot. This phrase, this idea. One of my fa- Oh, one of my favorite. I, I would say movies, dramas, uh, certainly Broadway musical of all time that really illustrates to me the meekness of wisdom in its main character, a man named Jean Valjean, mm. <laughs> Le Miserable. I love Le Miserable Part, for many reasons. One I think it, 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 it has continued to speak to people for generations. When it was first written by Victor Hugo, it was, a, it was an expansive novel with tremendous details in it. Each character really developed out. But as it's gone over time, you know, of course, it became a Broadway musical. Oh, just beautiful, oh, wonderful. I, the film, it became a, a dramatic film, not a musical film. Then this latest, which I love, by the way, because it does show a, a kind of aspect of Valjean that the musicals sometimes can't convey, but it doesn't have the music, so it's a trade-off. But the last film rendition was a musical, and it, and it was actually quite good and very powerful and very moving. Some of us say, well, most of us, I think, are familiar with, you know, that whole story. It's a great story. Uh, Jean Valjean, I think the way he's presented, he really models the humility of wisdom, the kindness, the meekness, the gentleness in which he, as a powerful man, uh, used his authority to, to bless people in his, in his years when he had um, found his way into a place of success. And the way he served, I was telling um, someone after service. I said, you know, one of the reasons I love the film, and it, it, I think it stars Liam Neeson in it as Jean Valjean. And I, 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 there's this moment where there is the, the, the she's a she's the prostitute, and she needs she needs his help, and so he comes, and she's sick, and she thinks he's he, that. Somehow there's a quid pro quo that she's, she so she she opens up the sheets, and and he, the the Christ likeness of what he was saying, how he modeled it, it was so beautiful to me. wait no, no, that's not, you're, that's not what I've come. And he begins to bless her and tell her I'm going to take care of your your daughter and it's beautiful, it's tender, it's so it was so Christ-like to me. The refusal to exploit, the willingness to serve. Powerful. You know, and uh, I think, uh, and and you you read the book, you watch the film, you you listen to it. Um, Part of it is what happened. You know what happens is that part of his transformation is connected to an interaction that he has with with the priest. I remember he he has this amazing exchange. Um, The priest forgives him. He steals from the priest. Uh, he, he returns the good that was given to the priest who let him stay in the house when no one else... He, he then re- he returns that good by stealing from him. So not only does he steal, but he steals in response to a good that was given. And, and then, of course, along the way, he gets told those words, you know, I bought your soul for God. Now, remember what had happened with Valjean in the story? It's great. He, he, remember, for 19 years, he's been in prison. First five years... All he did was steal a piece of bread, and he's given five-year sentence. The hand of justice comes hard on him. And then, he, because he tries to escape, he has, at the end of it, 14 more years out. He serves 19 years. He, in a very difficult environment where men are treated extraordinarily inhumanely, by the time he gets out, he's angry. He feels he's been unjustly victimized and violated. And he's seething. And when he gets on the street, remember what he sort of, what happens is he has to, on top of that, he's stigmatized. He's got a yellow passport he's got to carry. When he goes to an innkeeper, he has to show him the passport. When he does, they don't want him to stay. You're an ex convict. Get out of here. He's on the street. When Hugo pictures it, he's on the street, angry, seething. He's got a lens that he sees it, sees the world. You know what that lens is? It's unjust, and I'm a victim. He's an angry man with the lens of a victim, and part of us understands why, because it's not fair. It's like that's not right. But he's so angry, he's bitter, he's resentful, and so when the priest welcomes him in, you remember what happens? He welcomes him in, he says, "Look, you stay, you stay here. Thank you." Goes to bed but his script is so strongly ingrained in him that even though he's been given a tremendous blessing, what he does, remember what happens in the story? He, in the night, he sees the silverware, has great value. He says, you know, I'm just gonna take it and get out of here. So he wraps it all up, he takes it, and he gets out with the silverware. Eventually, though, he runs into the police. They catch him with the goods. They say, those aren't yours. He's brought back. They know where they came from. The church brought back to the priest. Remember what happens in that interaction? There's this beautiful exchange. In a way, he, they say to him, we found them. We found the one who stole uh, the, your, your goods. All you need to do is verify that that's what happened. And the priest says, to everybody's surprise, no. He didn't, steal in fact, he didn't steal them. In fact, I gave it to them. And in fact, he says, in fact, you know what? He forgot the most expensive things, (laughs) the silver candlesticks. Here, take them. You forgot them. And Valjean is there. And they they look and they say, all right. And then it's just the priest and Valjean. Let me read what he says, (laughs) all right. (laughs) This is from the novel, all right. This is from the novel. This is how Hugo puts it. It's Valjean staring in the eyes of the priest, and the priest says this. I love these words. Forget not, never forget, that you have promised me to use this silver to become an honest man. And then listen to this phrase. Jean Valjean, my brother. You belong no longer to evil but to good. It is your soul that I am buying for you, I withdraw it from the dark thoughts and from the spirit of perdition, and I give it to God. Powerful in the musical. <laughs> I'm not going to sing, so don't worry. <laughs> All right. But it goes like this. I asked where they put it up. Look at, look at how it's rendered. It's poetic. It's awesome. He says, it, but remember this, my brother, see in this some higher plan. You must use this precious silver to become an honest man. By the witness, see the gospel. By the witnesses of the martyrs, by the passion and the blood, God has raised you out of darkness. And I have bought your soul for God. Powerful. I love it. I love it. It's all about redemption. It's all about the, God, the, the things that God can do in a person's life. What is he saying? You've got to operate out of a new lens now. I'm, that's how you've seen it. Now I'm ch- it's, it's great. I mean, when you, when you sit with it, when you start w- looking at what happens and you follow the story along, you realize that as, a, as time goes on, he actually, you know, there is a struggle in the man. Um, he, he has experienced this un- amazing gift, not just mercy, but grace. And um, he receives, for a crime he did commit, a pardon. And all of a sudden... Out of his brokenness and his sense of being forgiven, he starts to change. He starts to become Christ-like. Now, he has a moment, a period there. Hugo describes it where he goes back, and he falls back into a small pattern, but he catches himself. And he, along the way, he, he, he begins to see himself in a different lens. He begins to see himself through the lens of one forgiven and one blessed. And then he becomes, amazingly, a blesser. And I was thinking about it. It, it. That's how it is in a way. What's the connection? Well, for me, it's like this is how it's for you and me. I was thinking that's the same thing. How we see ourselves in Christ affects how we live and treat other people and how we also work on ourselves. Because when we truly do see ourselves as someone who's been forgiven and shown great mercy, that has an effect on how we live out our life. If that's the lens we see ourselves out of, that I am forgiven in Christ and shown great mercy by God, not just once, but on a continual basis, then that begins to permeate my life. It starts to become the way in which I view things. So how can I be angry, so angry? How can I want to retaliate? How can I ignore things that are going on inside of my heart when the Lord who has forgiven me and does continually forgive me, if that's the lens that I'm seeing myself through, forgiven and loved by Christ, who gave everything for me, then that's going to challenge me when I'm confronted with things that are uh, ugly in my own heart. And God's going to to call us out. And again, it's it's going to affect how we carry ourselves. It's going to affect how we treat others. You know, this principle is really illustrated by something else that Jesus said. It's one of of the most quoted verses, pieces of, of the Gospels. It's in Matthew 11. It says this. When Jesus was talking to the people, he said, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want you to take my yoke upon you. I want you to take my yoke upon you, and I want you to learn from me. See the connection between the meekness of wisdom? Let's see it. For I am gentle. He could have said anything. He said, I want you to learn from me because I am the ultimate righteous one. I am perfect. I am the Lord of glory. I am powerful. I am holy. I am the Lord. He could have said, I am. What, is, what is that? Learn of me, for I am meek and lowly, gentle and lowly. And and again, you will find rest for your souls. Right? You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden, my burden is light. He was contrary. He was talking to people. You know. Now we read that and we go, "Oh, that's, that's very interesting." You know. I mean, the, what is what is a yoke? They knew that it was... We don't use that that much. We don't even barely refer to a yoke. What is he talking about? In in their day, right, they would have understood exactly what it was. Because you know what a yoke was? A yoke was a a piece of wood that was often placed around the neck of an oxen. And it would join two oxen together. And it still happens in still parts of the world where this is a regular, regular kind of visual. But for us, we don't see it as much. But in their day, it was so clear... In fact, a yoke of oxen were two oxen. And they were brought together and they created two oxen power, right? And you could move through, you could plow things, you could carry things, you pull things. Ox, ox was strong. You put two of them together. Usually you would put a, a weaker one or with a stronger one. And then they would move together. And what is Jesus getting at? He's saying, I want you to learn my ways. I want you to yoke with me. That's what, he, that, that's what that means. It's like, learn my, it's like Eugene Peterson called it, he says, he says it's, as, it's as if Jesus said, learn the unforced rhythm of grace by moving with me. Learn to move with me in life. Learn to move with me. Let, whenever we're feeling that heavy, he's saying, don't, one thing he's saying, look, I, I'm not trying to lay something onerous on you. It is a yoke. It requires something of submission and alignment on our part, but it's not designed to, to cheat you out of life or lay heavy things. It's designed to teach you how to move with me. Learn to move with me. Learn to move in my rhythm. That's what he's trying to get at. It's and, and that and what he's also making there is that connection then that part of what he was modeling and teaching is that gentleness and humility of heart are keys to end the deep and rested soul. And a lot of times you and I can know when we're Carrying things that we have assigned ourselves. Some of us right now, we have, honestly, the truth is, we have a very heavy load. And we are feeling that weight. We feel it. Uh, I mean, before service, I had, someone prayed over me. It was just a blessing. said, you know, they didn't even know I was going to share on Matthew 11. They said, you know, whatever that, remember, his his yoke is easy. It's like his burden is light. Don't, don't carry, remember, don't carry, when we're carrying things Part of what the Lord is saying is, take my yoke on you. Don't, don't, get, don't get the carry. My burden is light. We'll talk about that in a moment. Let me go back to James, James 3. James 3, verse. look at the next three verses, just kind of read through them. He says, but if you, he's talking about, again, that meekness of wisdom. He says, but if you're bitterly jealous, there is selfish ambition in your heart. Now, notice he's saying two things will corrupt the humility of wisdom in our life. He says, if you're bitterly jealous and there is selfish ambition that's gripping your heart, don't cover it up, up the truth, but with boasting and lying. Don't say that you have the wisdom of God if that's the stuff that's moving inside of our heart. For jealousy and selfishness are not, that's not God's kind of wisdom. In fact, then he uses three words with increasing intensity. He says, no, no, those kind of things are like, they're earthly, they're unspiritual. They're even, even demonic. He says, for wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder in every... Every kind of, evil kind of thing. I mean, every evil, evil of every kind. Basically, what he's saying is that's going to destroy the peace. Now, that's true in any, any workplace environment. It's true in any home, and it's true in our own heart. This, this stuff, envy, it will, it will just squeeze out life. And all of a sudden, it creates a very competitive environment. And I was talking to some people. They say, that's the environment I work in. It's, a, it's everybody's, everybody's out. I can't trust anybody. You know, everybody's trying to get the one up. Everyone will stab you in the back. You know, it's just, when, that, when that is the value, right? When there's, a, when there's a culture of jealousy or a culture of ambition that's self-oriented, it destroys the peace. The reason it ruins the peace is because peace, peace moves together. There's a unity in it. There's, there's a humility in it. What what he's saying is that whenever these two things exist, it destroys the peace. Listen, when they exist inside of us, it destroys the peace. When we're consumed with what someone else has, or what we don't have, um, I'm going to, you know, because the Lord wants us to have peace. You know, Jesus wants us, Jesus said, I want to give you peace in three ways, primarily. That's how I see it. Peace with God by relationship with me peace with one another by applying my principles by my spirit into your key relationships and in peace of mind where so much of our conflict occurs. I will give you rest. My peace will guard you like a sentinel in the night when that stuff comes at us. Peace I give unto you not as the world giveth, give I unto you. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you those who trust in you. If I was consolidating what James is teaching us and what we talked about, I would put it in these three ways. So I'm going to talk about just three critical ways to apply this and consolidate these truths down. I'm going to suggest that if we want to grow in godly wisdom, then we're going to need to guard against, here is the number one, and I talked a little bit about it already. We're going to need to guard against number one, just envy, you know, and instead what we need to do is cultivate a kind of godly contentment in our lives. This is really important, you guys, because... How can I say it? It doesn't, it doesn't mean, contentment doesn't mean that we lack ambition. It, there can be a legitimate ambition. Well, I'm thinking about this. What, what it's reminding us is don't get consumed with stuff and make that, the, uh, the acquisition of those things, the condition for happiness and peacefulness in God. Don't do that. He's, he's, when he's talking about, con, you know, contentment, he's, he's saying there's a place of satisfaction even when things aren't going the way we want them. I'll put it another way. It doesn't mean that we are at peace with every situation. Listen, what it means is that we learn to be at peace in every situation. That's a very different thing. I may not like what's happening right now, but God has a way of showing me a path in the middle of this situation that I find very difficult, very uncomfortable, and part of me wants to run away from and maybe even become self-destructive in. But the Lord wants to teach me in his wisdom, the humility of wisdom, how to be not at peace with the situation. Maybe I need to continue to work and pray for a change. But while we're walking in it, listen, we learn to be at peace in it. And that is a gift of God. That's what he wants to teach us how to do, to not be destroyed, defined, to not see ourselves out of the lens sometimes of an unfair or even bitter place. But to remember who we are in God. And and then I'll I'll flip it over to the second piece here, which is this. We not only need to guard against envy and cultivate contentment, but we need to also guard against selfishness. I'm going to use a bit of a play on words here. And instead cultivate selflessness and sacrificial love. That instead of allowing ourselves to be dominated by what we want all the time, remember we follow in the way of the master, follow my unforced rhythm of grace, you know, follow with me, yoke with me, walk with me, learn my ways. Remember to be a blesser. Don't get just consumed in what we want for ourselves, right? A lot of times I say to people, you know, you got the Lord wants to teach us to love well in healthy. Okay, he said this. He said, love, love your neighbor as yourself. I know it's been said before, but if we don't have a healthy, healthy, healthy self-love, how do we love others healthily? A lot of times the first thing that God's trying to get at in a person's life is to have a healthy perspective of how much we are loved by God. Because a lot of our relational issues are connected to an unhealthiness of understanding of how much we are really loved. We have, a, we have an un, unhealthy self-love. And, and, and I'm not talking about ego. Um, I'll use an example. Remember when Jesus is like, and I'm talking about loving ourselves in a healthy way so that then we can bless other people. And I, I'll give you a perfect example. When Peter and Jesus, on the other side of the resurrection, after the denial, where Peter had, you know, early on, Peter's lens is, You know, I am a strong man who is loyal. And then after he fails, and I mean he fails fabulously. It is complete, utter, broken disavowment of anything to do with Jesus, the one he loved. You want to talk about a failure. You think about the person you love the most, and you just break their heart. To pieces. And he, on the other side of the resurrection, yes, there's a joy in knowing you're alive, but I'm still the same guy. I'm no good. And whatever you're planning on doing, probably need to do it without me, like all the rest of the guys know. I let you down. And then Jesus has that moment where he says to him, Remember the beautiful exchange at the end of John's Gospel? He says, Peter, do you love me? While the fish is sizzling on the fire, and the smell is in the air on the seashore of Galilee, and he puts his head down, and he says, yes, Lord, I love you, but how can I really say it? I want you to feed my I want you to bless, feed my sheep. Peter, I say to you, do you love me? Two, you know I do. I, yes. Feed my sheep. Bless. Peter, do you love me? Grieve the third time. Lord, what are you doing to me? You know everything. You know I love you. Feed my lambs. Feed them up. Feed them. Be- look, you know what he's trying to do? He's saying, look, one, you're loved. You're forgiven. But he's also reminding him, you need, you need to accept that. You need to shift your lens right now. And embrace my word for you because you cannot be the blessing I want you to be holding on to this. See, what is his lens? His lens is, I'm a failure. And what God is saying, you are forgiven. You are loved. Every, that's the lens I want you to never forget to look out, out of. And all of a sudden, he goes, and then when you see that, now you can bless. Now you can feed. You see what he's getting at. Powerful. Same thing with you and me. To to love, we have to have an appreciation for. It goes back to the same thing with Valjean. The same thing. It's like, how do we see in Christ? Okay, and the last thing I'll say, and I'll put it up this way, is that we need to guard against going our own way, but instead seek to submit to his. I'll I'll, I'll use this example. Remember the yoke. All right, Jesus says, take my yoke on you. Basically, what he's saying is, I'm not going to make you, but I'm inviting you. And this is true for every one of us. I invite you to join with me. I invite you to do this. I invite you, you mean like put my, yes, I invite you to yoke in with me. And a lot of us are right there, we're saying, do I wanna do that? But here's the deal, that's the first step. And a lot of times what what baptism to me says is that I'm now deciding to, to, to go into the yoke with you, Jesus. I wanna work with you. I wanna be yours and you want you to be mine. Here's what happens, though. We get into the yoke, and we say, okay, I'm in. And then we say, okay, Jesus, come and follow me. Come on. Come on. Let's go. Come on. And Jesus says, no, come and follow me. And we get to decide. We get to decide, are we going to fight him? Because in a lot, of our, a lot of our real issue. Is or not Move with me. Move with me. Move with me. Learn my ways. Move with me. Oh, Lord, I don't want to do it. I want to go here. This is what I want. And he's, it's that tension. And the Lord is trying to teach, no, move with me. Move with me. You got that inside of you, right? Move with me. Move, challenge that thing. Move with me. No. Move with me. See it? Let it go. Quit, quit digging in. Trust me. Same thing. Embrace my word for you, Peter. Same thing. You are a new man, Valjean. You've been purchased for the, for the purposes of God. See, it's the same thing. And then when we get that, you know what it does? It starts to permeate everything. I love the analogy of Jesus. So the kingdom of God is like a seed in the ground, and it grows. It's like a leaven in the bread. It expands. It touches every part of our life if it's really working right. Everything gets affected by it, everything gets improved by it. Everything gets challenged. How that's a good thing. That's a good thing. God's gonna call us to shape us, work us, grow us. I'm gonna not always get, I'm gonna fight him sometimes. Sometimes we're being stubborn. We need to- That means I'm gonna have to pray. I'm going to have to think about my life. I'm going to be open to what he wants to do. I'm going to bring, sometimes I have to bring others into that conversation. I'm going to have to commit. I'm going to have to do something. You know what an ox does? An ox works. That's not, that's like, he didn't use the analogy. He said, get in the yoke with me. Well, what is that? What was he saying? We've got work to do. Come on. That doesn't, he wasn't like, oh, you know what? Kick up the feet and let's just hang out together. He uses the ox yoke with me. Life is good. Let's work together. All parts of it. Ah, yeah, <laughs> yes. All right, Lord, Lord, we come before you. Um, we ne- help us, Lord, never to forget how much we need your grace and your mercy. In our lives, Lord, have mercy on me, for I also am a sinner. And never, Lord, let us out of your grip, the grip of your grace. No, hold us good, Lord. But also teach us to to quit fighting you. How much of our struggle is connected to our resistance to move with you? Some of us, we need to make the big step and get in with you. But even after we get in with you, Lord, we have to decide, are we going to move with you? Teach us your humble ways, because they're the ways of life. doesn't mean we don't stand firm sometimes. You, you knew how to confront things in tough ways. It was a work. It wasn't just simple all the time. But you model for us real life, the everlasting kind of life, in the everydayness of our life. And I pray that you would be present among us and keep growing us through each decade of our life, Lord that we will know the goodness and the grace of God and grow into the men and the women you've called us to be. Blessers in your name. So I pray your blessing, Lord, on the song that we're closing with, and I, I pray your blessing also on our, our time of giving and also on the weeks that are ahead, Lord. I'm looking forward to it. But keep working our lives. This is what I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.